0: I'm Max. I
1: am Amanda.
2: And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you're going to hear topics discussed. Max, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug?
0: Sure. I'm Max Yamasaki. I would like to plug oatmeal. Uh, I had it for the first time in, like, maybe four years this morning. I
1: thought you were going to say, in your life.
0: No.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that was my reading, too. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, disappointed.
0: I'm sorry. I can, uh, alter that statement if you'd like, <laughs> you know, if we choose to believe that like, you know, I've changed enough in those four years, these have been really formative years. So oh, yeah, in my current life, I have not had oatmeal, uh, and it was much better than I expected. Uh, I just had like plain steel cut oatmeal, uh, with a little bit of brown sugar and mm-hmm. I sat on my porch and ate it. Uh, and it was really nice.
1: I'm assuming where you live, it's like not where I live, where it is like minus ten.
0: No, it is not minus ten. <laughs> I would recommend eating your oatmeal inside if it's minus ten. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're cold, your oatmeal is cold. <laughs> <laughs> Just a shivering bowl of oatmeal outside. Some people have <laughs> exclusively outside oatmeal, and some people uh, don't think that's right.
2: <laughs> uh, oatmeal that lives inside lives longer.
0: Yeah, but, you know, I like to take my oatmeal on little walks just so it experiences some of the outdoors. Yeah,
2: just give it a taste of what it's missing so it knows to feel bad.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I like
2: oatmeal. I like a lot of those grain-based breakfast goops, like cream of wheat.
1: Yeah, breakfast goop is nice. Grits. Yeah, savory grits.
2: Oh, yeah, sweet or savory. I'll take either one. What are sweet grits
0: like? I think I've only had savory grits.
2: I mean, it's... It's what you'd imagine, you know, you put some butter and some sugar into the grits. That sounds good. Yeah.
1: My name is Ananda, and I write my to-do lists uh, with calligraphy, and I used to hate calligraphy. And now everything looks like a really bad prop to a weird old-timey movie.
2: Is that your plug? Because that sounds amazing.
1: That's my plug. I used to think calligraphy was really lame- even if people had the ceiling wax. And then after Christmas, for the holidays, when I was sending people cards, I was like, you know what, that, that would actually be awesome. And then I kind of got into it.
0: Yeah, that's very weird. personal. If I, if I came across a two-day list of yours, would I think it was a puzzle piece? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, you would. There's a lot of acronyms on it because the place I work at has a lot of acronyms. So it kind of looks like some weird <laughs> mystical puzzle or like secret society.
0: That's really excellent. Oh, man. When I incorporated, not
2: many people know this, but I'm a CEO. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I incorporated it, the package, my corporation package came with, I don't know what you call it, but one of those things that you stamp into wax to form a seal.
1: Whoa.
2: It was very odd.
1: Was that like... The deluxe package?
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I paid. I certainly paid my accountant a bunch of money for it, so maybe I got the the expensive version. But um, it felt like this is like a law that's been a law for three hundred years.
0: And so you're required to have your wax seal
2: for your company, right? Right. Just like you're required to have. Uh, oh, I forget what it's called, but you're required to every year have a meeting where you decide who your board of directors is, and you need minutes from that meeting. Every year, or bad things happen.
1: Board meeting. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, the the package also came with my first year's meeting, where I was like the secretary and the CEO, and every board member, and we all agreed that I should still be CEO. And this reminds
1: me of like a, a a small animated film I watched recently, and in the credits, you know, there's always like the same five people doing everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
2: Yeah. Or an indie game.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: Are we ready to start on some topics?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Absolutely.
2: Ananda, your topic is rare videos of European hamsters.
1: Okay. So there's a lot of videos of pet hamsters uh, around the internet. And there's actually like five different kinds of hamsters. There's like Syrian hamster, the winter white hamster, the Campbell's dwarf hamster, the Roborovsky hamster, and the Chinese hamster. But closely related to the Syrian hamster is the European hamster, and they're an endangered species, and they live in the wild. Like, hamsters, the temperament of hamsters are, like, they're vicious, and they will will try to kill. So there's a lot of, like, videos of wild hamsters floating around the internet where if anyone encounters them and gets too close, they don't understand that even though it is tiny, it will try to attack you. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I've just been really into trying to find, uh, videos of European hamsters because they're just so rare. Um, so people have set up camera traps and things like that. My favorite one is this, I think it's like a 10 year old video somewhere maybe in Russia. Um, it's like latched onto someone's shoe with its teeth,
0: uh, <laughs> with its dear life.
1: Um, it like drew blood from someone. Um, the same hamster who attacked the shoe. And there was like literally like, it, it it seemed like it was a crowd of like young rowdy boys around it and it was not afraid to take all of them on.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah, this doesn't seem like a a good survival strategy to me.
0: Yeah. Is the one you're talking about uh is it titled Evil Hamster? Yes. Okay. Okay. Now now I'm looking this up. Here, I'll send you a link to the one. Sure, okay. When you said latched on, I think I underestimated what that meant. <laughs>
1: So I've been really into um looking at ethical hamster breeders like around my area. So like I was interested in getting a hamster. Um and one thing that they try really hard to work on is temperament, because it's really common to get hamsters that are like super skittish and super aggressive.
2: Wow. I like that in this video the hamster looks like he's wearing a sweater. Like he's, he's super mad because the kids put a sweater on him.
0: What's a? It's such a wild contrast. Yeah, to like, to only have experience with like, oh, yes, this docile creature uh, that's very small. And then it's like something that kind of looks like that. But I would describe like someone has added hands <laughs> and feet. Yeah. Like that really, really stick out of the body in a way that uh, pet hamsters that I've met don't. And it's wearing a little sweater. It's a black belly. That's so weird, oh my God, And these people are just unafraid, and they're like, "Look, look, this tiny creature has drawn blood,
2: right. I am bleeding, <laughs> holding the hand in front of the camera, yeah, I mean i I knew that this like class of rodent, this is a rodent, right mm-hmm. was vicious, but like I'd only ever seen it happen like when guinea pigs attack other guinea pigs, like r- establishing the pecking order, basically. And they were real jerks to each other, but I had not experienced this or, or ever observed it. It's, it seems, it, it's, it's pretty impressive actually.
1: Guinea pigs can live together, but hamsters, um, like dwarf hamsters can kind of live together, but Syrian hamsters and especially European hamsters, they will actually murder each other. Or I think one common thing I've heard of is like they'll chew each other's eyes out.
2: Wow. Yikes.
1: I don't know how I feel about them being endangered. I want them to live, but at the same time, like, I don't know how they're surviving.
0: (laughs) Right. The ones that you see as pets here, like, what type of hamsters are those?
1: Um, there's five different kinds. Syrian, winter, white, Campbell's dwarf, Roborowski, and Chinese hamster. Mm -hmm. But the one that, I think the Syrian hamster, like, the one that kind of looks like the European hamster, Mm -hmm. they originally were from a lineage of three siblings, there was this, like, scientist a long time ago um, who found this pregnant European or maybe Syrian hamster in a field, put it in a box, didn't understand what it needed, opened the box when he got back to his lab, found that the mother hamster was eating her children, threw the mother in a jar of cyanide, and then started to raise the little pups. And then uh, some of them escaped, and then there were only three left, and then they had pups, and... For a while, uh, a lot of the domesticated pet hamsters after they were ran their course through labs mostly just came from that lineage of the three brothers and sisters.
0: Wow.
2: Wow. Taking cuttings like a, a really good uh, breed of apple. <laughs> 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 like if you, if you try to actually breed the hamsters you get from the pet store, you get something completely different.
0: <laughs> yeah. I had heard stories of like, how early hamster pets were delivered which was like you would order them from an ad in the back of a comic book or whatever and they would like be sent in like a coffee tin with a potato oh my god and then like when you would arrive you would just have like a hamster and no potato but like a potato's worth of feces
2: (laughs) very efficient if you ever need to convert a potato to feces yeah just
0: ship a hamster with it i guess
2: Right, it, you, get, you pay, have to pay for postage, but yeah, I mean that's a small a cost deal
0: to get what needs right. to be done done. That's an extreme response to drop the mother in cyanide.
1: Yeah, it was written. It's written in different bits of literature. Um, I don't know why they did that. That was really extreme. It's even like casually dropped in the Wikipedia article too.
2: Wow. Yeah, the the fact that nobody ever like interviewed this guy and asked, Hey, why did you drop the hamster in cyanide? And that indicates that we should be able to do like psychoanalyze the entire human species of that era and and just we would understand if we understood them, we would understand why somebody would do this.
1: Yeah. Um I also found out that uh hamster comes from the German word hamstern. It means like little hoarder, which I think is like the most adorable thing ever. That
0: is very good. Mm. Do you, do you want a hamster? Like, I guess, what's the ideal way to have a hamster in your mind?
1: Okay, so there's like, all of the cages that we have loved and known growing up are way too small. Um, they need at least like, like six feet by like three to four feet of floor space. And so a lot of people will buy IKEA furniture and then turn them into uh, hamster cages where the hamster can burrow into the cage after like adding like a foot of like bedding. But I would love to have like a German naturalist hamster cage with lots of like bedding and enrichment for the hamster, like different kinds of like, I don't know, pellets to feel around on its feet and stuff. There's a lot of like really weird hamster tank building communities out there.
2: They're, (laughs) they're
1: pretty interesting though. That's cool.
0: Yeah. Have either of you heard of the book, uh, King Solomon's ring by, uh, conrad z lorenz i don't know it
1: i do not know it
0: conrad lorenz was this pretty notable naturalist around i i want to say like turn of the century or a little later this book is like halfway between like a memoir and also just like general interesting things that he's had like because it is like the time of naturalism where it's like oh yeah just bring all of these animals into your home and so (laughs) it's just his observations about like a really wide range of animals and their behaviors, but done in this way where you come, like you see how much of just like a interesting guy he is. Uh, Cause he has like textbooks and things, but this is more just like, it's got his doodles in the margins in a lot, most copies. Uh, cool. And he talks about just like observing the different behaviors where it's like a damselfly versus a dragonfly, like their larvae, will both swim around and they look pretty identical but damselflies uh they have no fear and they'll just like attack anything that's bigger than them and like they'll attack other damselflies and they'll attack themselves and dragonflies are like they eat more and they are more aggressive in some ways but they they have like a hard instinct to not attack anything bigger than them huh
1: wow the the damselflies sound like uh european hamsters yeah
0: that's what i was kind of thinking about <laughs> uh but it's a really good book i recommend it it's like it's very playful and it's just like in that weird era of naturalism where it was just like oh yeah i'll just like capture a whole pond and put it in my house and just stare at it <laughs> for yeah
2: what era was that was that like 19th century? Yeah, yeah. Like, gentleman scientist kind of deal? And, like,
0: a little bit after that, where it was, like, starting to be a bit more humane, but still you're taking all these things and putting them in your house. Right. Yeah, he was born in 1903, and he died in the 80s. But, okay, yeah, so King Solomon's Ring was written in 49. Wow. Yeah. Much later than I was expecting. Me too, honestly. I kind of forgot. (laughs) (laughs) But, Yeah. I recommend an older copy because they they tend to have the illustrations a little bigger. But yeah, it's just like, what I really like is that he's not, he's not a very like skilled uh, drawer. He's just like, he's got like a good sense of like, here is an exact description of this like very specific species of duck. And then it's like, here's just a real scribble of how angry this duck is.
2: (laughs) Very good. Are we ready for another topic? Yes. Yep. Max, your topic is would you rather eat the last dragon or a human being?
0: Yeah. So, uh I had a sudden fear just now that I think I've brought this up previously on the podcast. I don't actually know. But uh this is a question that I
2: if so, it's probably my fault because I've selected the topic again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, this is a question that I ask people not as much anymore, but I used it used to be my go-to for like a kind of slightly weird get to know you question even though there's only two answers i feel like what really shows about someone is like the the rationale and their follow-up questions right because i really like hearing those like it's so interesting when people get kind of in the nitty-gritty of like i'm like oh is it the only dragon like it's the only one who's around so it can't reproduce or they're like oh well is it already dead or not and like how much those play into the decisions
2: yeah, that would, I mean, that would be my first question: is Is the dragon? Am I killing the dragon? Am I killing the human, or are they already dead? Yeah, it seems. Yeah, it seems very, very important
0: to the to the ethical calculus. Yeah, some for some people, and then other people, they're they're like a hard line thing where they're like, "I love the dragon so much, it doesn't matter." Like, I would be disgusted to try and like eat a dragon, and some people have the same. Right. But for humans, uh, of course, and then like. Some people are just like, oh, like the dragon, like if it's the last dragon, I want to try. I want to eat that last dragon. <laughs> right.
2: I've also never had a chance to eat a person.
0: Yeah. I did one time have, uh, like, I had a coworker, and at the time I was working at a, a cheese shop. And this woman uh, is like a cheese shop in a small town. And then she was also, she also worked at the bookstore. And, a bunch of other places, uh, in downtown, uh, and so people could have this very cartoon experience of like, they would go to the travel agency and the bookstore and the cheese shop, and it would just be the same woman working all of these jobs within the same day.
2: Right, right. Like when you're when you're at a party and you change your wig to make you look make it look like you're two different people at
0: the party. Yeah,
1: this just sounds like a spooky RPG.
0: Yeah, uh, and she really added to that effect when uh, I asked her this question at work. Uh, and she was cutting up chicken at the time and uh i was like so would you rather eat like the last dragon or a human being and she goes oh the human being and i i'm waiting i'm like okay that makes sense like you know and i'm waiting for follow up and then what she says is even without the dragon thing <laughs> and i said oh, what and <laughs> she she like looks me in the eyes uh with such an uncomfortable passion and she says i mean haven't you ever wanted to try it
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing and this turned out to be a hoax or not even a hoax it was just a like a joke website um, called Hufu.com. Uh, and it was a very at, at the time it was like early early aughts I think a very like uh s- stylish like up like modern web design uh, very convincing uh, website that purported to sell fake human meat like textured soy protein that was like eating a person
0: Oh wow. I I think I remember that.
2: I don't know though. It seems like uh seems like that would be a good service that somebody could provide. <laughs> it's like they they just need one person who's had human to do the to do the taste testing. Well. <laughs> and then everybody else could try it ethically.
0: Yeah, Silence of the Lambs but it's like a cooking movie where they just keep coming back to Hannibal Lecter <laughs> and they're like, is this right? How close are we? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't think about, I didn't think about like the documentary that would be uh that could be a very powerful uh, set of
0: images. I kind of probably preempted too much, but uh, what are y'all's answers? Do you think are follow-up questions for dragon or human last dragon or a human?
1: How old is the dragon?
0: Uh, Let's say that the dragon is alive and lives if you don't eat it.
1: How much longer?
0: Uh, you don't know.
1: Is it pregnant?
0: Uh, not currently.
2: <laughs> Hang on. My son is knocking on the door. Oh.
1: We'll
2: hey, Winston, you. you're on the air. Can
1: I, I say goodnight to you?
2: Yes, you can say goodnight. <laughs> Night-night, buddy. Sleep well. right, now you leave the room. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sorry, go on. That was so cute. Oh, good.
1: I wonder which one
0: he would eat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, I think he knows enough language to understand the question. (laughs)
0: Before you go to bed, here's the question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when our cat Eve died we had him around when we were burying her mm-hmm. uh, and he didn't seem to, I still don't really understand to the extent to which he gets death. What, what happened was that we, we said goodbye and then we buried the cat. Mm-hmm. And then later that night he said, we should dig her up and say hello. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. It would have been a bad idea.
1: Oh, oh no. I think I would eat the, I'm just worried if I eat the last dragon and I get like some weird, like, you get, mad like, dragon d- dragon worms. Dragon worms, and then like I mad cause. Mad dragon disease was what you were going to say. That's <laughs> yeah. very good. Mad dragon disease, and I cause like. Because obviously, like, the last dragon, did he eat all of the other dragons? Or is she, did oh, she yeah. eat all the other dragons?
2: Biomagnification.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I, I don't know. It's a
2: serious consideration. With, with the human, too.
1: Yeah. <gasps> Wait. If it's the last human, does that mean I'm a dragon?
2: <laughs> yes. In this scenario, am I a dragon or a- which one am I?
0: No. Uh, it is just a human, not the last human. But I like that scenario too. Does it matter if you're a dragon? Yeah. If you're a dragon, would you eat the last? Dra- would you last eat the last other dragon or a human? Right.
2: <laughs> if If you were the last two dragons on Earth. Would you breed or would you just eat the other one?
0: (laughs) I like mad dragon disease. Yes, it's very good. It's a concept. Oh, man. I'm picturing it kind of like a rabies thing, uh, but it's like you really, you start like grabbing gold and uh, Mm -hmm. lighting things on fire and then uh, you fly away. Yeah,
2: uh, I would eat the person.
0: Me too.
1: Yeah, unless, uh, unless I'm a dragon. I think I'm the right. human.
2: Yeah, it seems uh like eating a magical creature seems like it could have unknowable consequences.
0: Or you would get cool powers, which is what a lot of people have. There is a surprising amount of people who are like I want to taste this thing. It's a rare treat because it's the last one. And people who are like I might get magic powers from eating the dragon. Right. <laughs> which people don't often bring up for the human, I guess.
2: But, oh yeah are we do we live in a universe that cares about us yeah. is is it a universe created by a game designer or was it just did it spontaneously form?
0: Yeah,
1: I feel like if there's dragons, they're the apex predator and we're gonna be humbled a lot so maybe we don't matter as much
0: mm.
2: yeah are we ready for another topic? Yeah yes my topic is what happened in the editor culture that made medical and mathematical Wikipedia absolutely useless for lay readers? And is there anything we can do to fix it? First of all, are you two familiar with this phenomenon?
1: No, unless I'm looking something up, then I kind of just go into a Wikipedia hole. But I didn't know there was like a change in culture.
2: Well, I don't know. I don't know if it was ever good for lay readers. <laughs> like, I guess you could look at the history and find out. But if you look up a uh, mathematical concept or like a uh, a medical, um, like a drug, for example, a pharmaceutical page, uh, you will find like extremely technical documentation intended for other people who are working in the field. Yes. Uh, which is not the case for most like, it's not the case for most Wikipedia pages, which are intended for people to like read and get an understanding of the topic.
0: Yeah. I have kind of noticed that, especially when I was like actively trying to learn a math concept on my own. And then I would like look up a thing and I was like, Oh, this is not helpful or diveable in the same way that like other areas are. Right,
2: right, and it may be that some of these cop- c- concepts are just they're not going to be uh, meaningfully graspable by a lay reader. So why not write it for an expert? But I think a lot of them are pretty graspable, and they're just not written in a good, like a a, a good general voice uh, for a general audience, rather.
0: It's interesting. I guess it's like, do you think we we don't. Count like teaching something as factual information. Like the time and the space on the page to explain a concept the way that we explain facts in other areas uh, is like, oh, that's not like pertinent to the Wikipedia because it's not just the information for some reason.
2: Are you, I'm not sure what you're getting. Do you mean like if it's a, an abstract concept as opposed to a, a, a concrete concept?
0: Like, taking the time to, like, say if they had, like, a, an actual little, like, tutorial, like, it was like, oh, here's the, here's how this thing is used. And, like, here's a little lesson teaching you, like, if they had a whole, like, little uh, YouTube video tutorial, like, built into the Wikipedia. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And honestly, that might be what's necessary. Like, if it were, it, I, I don't, I don't expect Wikipedia to go as slowly as a tutorial would, or, have like a video visual aid, even though both of those things would be helpful. It's just not something that I expect of that format.
1: Yeah.
2: I don't know. I, I, like maybe maybe I, I'm I'm secretly just not ready for, I can't think of an example now because I wrote this topic like over a month ago and the thing that, that made me decide I wanted to talk about it is now gone from my memory. So I don't know what, what prompted it, but maybe I, whatever it was, maybe I'm just not ready for it.
0: I was kind of struck the, other direction by something recently on wikipedia uh my boyfriend and i had a date night where we were making presentations about armadillos for each other (laughs) Uh, that's very good because there's like there's two primary families of armadillos and there's only 21 species of armadillos in the world and so we're like okay so you take half and i take half and we we research them on wikipedia as much as we can And we just make a little PowerPoint and we present them to each other.
2: This is so beautiful. I really, really enjoy this. Yeah, I
0: I recommend it. It's a great activity. It's very enjoyable. (laughs) (laughs) And then I kind of got derailed. Like I started making it funny, but then I got to this fact on the page for like the nine banded armadillo. I have it saved still. It's got like, A very small section on reproduction, even though what it has is very interesting because it says um, it's like, yeah, it's the seven banded armadillo. It's got a pretty short Wikipedia page. um, And then the reproduction section is females give birth to seven to nine genetically identical offspring. Uh, And I got to that and I was like, that is wild that they have septuplets to like nine tuplets every time non-uplets maybe non-uplets?
2: that'd be my guess
0: but uh that's all they have there but they have a wildly. yeah that's the only
2: sentence in that section yeah
0: and then there's a wildly specific sentence and like a segment above that the description long-nosed armadillos have broad depressed bodies and obtusely pointy rostrums and it's like okay that might be useful for identifying it but then it says Scoots on the movable bands are triangular in shape, but those on the main plates are round. The number of scoots present on the fourth movable band varies from 44 to 52, with a mean of (laughs) 48.4. And I picture picking up an armadillo and counting... uh, Scoots, by the way, are like the little scales on uh, animals with coarse skin, where it's like there's big flat areas. Oh, sure. Okay. And so... Uh I was like picking it up and counting the little scoots on the fourth movable band of this armadillo while it's wriggling in your arms, and I was just like okay how how many armadillos did they pick up in the woods for that to be the case
2: right right how many how many did they they measure She's
1: someone's passion for like a good ten years
2: yeah,
0: right, but then I checked the citation uh and it's it's this website uh that's very uh I'm on it right now. Yeah, very like '90s internet. It's an excellent website. It's called faunaparaguay.com, and it has that exact like paragraph. It's just copied word for word and put on Wikipedia. Oh, very good. And they attribute it to someone else. I was
1: looking at their volunteer opportunities and uh, links to another website where they have a updated website.
0: Oh, that's good to know. Well. Uh I guess my fauna of paraguay website knowledge might be out of date then.
1: Apparently it's it's Rolex Award winning. I don't I I I don't know if it's like the the watch company because they probably also make i I'm assuming they also make scientific instruments because they make
0: watches, but ah. I don't know. Plausible, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting guess. I like that's makes sense. Um so the citation that they have is uh Hamlet nineteen thirty nine. Uh, and so I found this paper on JSTOR, and it is from 1939. And it's a nine-page paper from, like, the freshly created Journal of Mammalogy, And it's this guy who, he's like, I've spent four years in Paraguay, like, figuring out that there is a new species of armadillo beyond the five we already know about. <laughs> uh, and I was like, but where is this thing about the number of scoots on the fourth movable band? And I finally get to it, uh, and he has this, like, chart that is, like, specific examples, and then the number of scoots on the fourth movable band. All the other details are just, like, how long is it? How uh, heavy is it? And, like, things that make sense. And then I guess it makes sense to have, like, one kind of out-there identifier. But it it doesn't say anything about any of the other bands. Uh, And it's only done on 12 armadillos that were already stuffed and in museums there was no (laughs) this guy spent four years and was like I think there's a new species of armadillo and it was already dead armadillos that were already in museums
1: (laughs) you should email Fauna Paraguay and let them know
2: yeah you (laughs) should also uh, make an angry comment on the talk page of that Wikipedia article explaining validation of their research
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but i i really love uh i was really heartened to see that this guy was also like this is a brief description due to the format of a journal i'll follow up with a more in-depth paper detailing the species uh, and he never did so mm-hmm. <laughs> i was like oh thank god other people fail at things that's nice so <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's,
2: it's, it's always uh it's always a relief to discover that you're not the only bad person in the world yeah <laughs> Uh, Are we ready for another topic?
1: Yes. Yes.
2: For this topic, we're going to be reading the poem, reading and discussing, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace by Richard Braudigan. I like to think, and the sooner the better, of a cybernetic meadow where, uh, where mammals and computers live together in mutually programming harmony like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think, right now please, of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. I like to think, it has to be, of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature, returned to our mammal brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. So this was written in 1967. It's
1: like when sort of like the like the counterculture era of like hippies and computers sorry that's not a that's not a good explanation at all i just kind of like stumbled upon something on wikipedia that kind of shocked me that richard rodigan also wrote uh watermelon sugar which also (laughs) inspired uh harry styles who i i'm not i don't listen to pop culture things but that often but he was in one direction which uh-huh. was like that pop group and he has his own solo thing now and, and is, uh, also in the Marvel Universe, uh, not, I don't really watch it, but he's Thanos's brother, but okay. he, he has a song called, uh, Watermelon Sugar. And I just think it's like really weird how this like poet has, and writer has written things that like kind of preluded to like sort of, uh, computer counterculture stuff. And then also just like, I don't know pop culture now i think it's really weird sorry i didn't explain that properly but that was kind of weird
0: yeah
2: yeah so the 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 digital utopianism i remember that being a huge thing in like the late 90s when people and you you got people from the, the other side talking about how terrible it was that everybody's staring at their screens all day too as if they weren't already watching tv all day but the idea that the internet is going to bring people together in a good way and 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 it's super interesting to me to think about that this idea that that computers are going to fix humanity like it it started kind of at the point where computers entered the the popular consciousness just at all yeah this particular poem kind of envisions uh the the optimistic form of the singularity where machines take over the world and they fix people They like just make it make a utopia for the people who created them, and and it isn't very specific about how. But I I think it's just like just the thought of it is nice to this to this author.
1: Yeah, the first time I read it, I was in high school, and I was like, it's when I started learning about different eco villages. I was like, oh yeah, like this idea is awesome. Like I love the sentiment coming from this poem. And then every every few years, I, I I read this poem again, and I'm just like. Oh, this just is sounding like naive, and I can't tell if the author's being like ironic or I can't tell how I feel about this anymore. Would we, would humans just be completely like destroyed within this like singularity? There couldn't be like a balance. And I don't know. So every few years I come back to it and I'm just, I don't know how I feel about it.
0: Yeah. Oh man, I had not heard this poem before, and that is. I feel like I've had a similar journey with just with that concept even of like growing up with the idea of like a, a tech utopia pretty young and then just like revisiting yeah. that idea over time and, and shifting slowly on it and then not so slowly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I remember, I remember growing up like that, like that too. I, I, I was very, um very pro technology as a, as a, as a way to improve the human experience. And in fact, Pro singularity for a while too. Uh the 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 idea of the singularity, though, of, of bringing the race beyond what it is, like uplifting ourselves, yeah. effectively being a way to solve every
0: problem that we currently have. I'm really interested in how this poem is kind of the opposite of that, though, too. Where it has this energy of like, I'll make a machine to water my plants, then go back to sleep, so I don't have to water <laughs> my plants. Where it's like joined back to nature returned to our mammal brothers and sisters and watched over by machines of loving grace like my first game idea my friend and i thought of something in like middle school and it's too big to ever be usable it was a sort of uh dystopic utopia where we really liked the idea of just like uh making something that was like deeply alarming in what it represented but was incredibly pleasant and didn't subvert that pleasantness where uh we just had like a world uh where humans are kind of have lost all long-term thinking because we have a sort of like computy computy <laughs> uh, a <laughs> computy system that like helps with <laughs> all the long-term things uh, but we get really really good at like short-term things and we just have all of this like expressive art and like violently bright emotions for short moments and just kind of having this idea that like regardless of of how how much something moves away from how we currently perceive life humans are always going to find things to enjoy and like find beautiful ways of being in there and i don't think that the like all ways of being are are equal in that way but
2: yeah any any utopia needs to think a lot about how to fix boredom
0: yeah I really like, there's like a Margaret Atwood quote and this essay she has about like, how all dystopias are secretly a utopia that's been subverted. Like you have to have, you have to have something that you're thinking is ideal in order to show a world that is like the dark face of that, that you, you, that doesn't have those things.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I don't know about that utopia specifically that you described, but I do think it's plausible that uh, a uh, a realistic utopia does need to be kind of scary on its face. I, I feel like any any anything like that is going to be so um, different from what we're accustomed to that it's going to just be super weird and it only sounds good if you really think it through. Yeah,
0: yeah. Any way of being that changes things to be intensely beautiful in a way that we don't have is going to be also existentially horrifying in that way. <laughs>
2: right. And But that doesn't mean necessarily that anything ex- existentially horrifying is a utopia. Yeah,
0: I think some people get mixed up. <laughs> it just that. means but, that's <laughs> what it looks yeah. like. There is this economist in the 30s. Like you were saying about how it was like earlier than you had thought, with people kind of that like techno utopia, people thinking that things would be solved by this new technology in the 90s and then the 60s but there was uh this essay by this economist uh in 1930 that's uh Uh john maynard Keynes, uh and it's called economic possibilities of our grandchildren he predicts in it with the rate of progress and the rate of like automation that we will be down to a uh a 15 hour work week by the turn of the 21st century. (laughs) And it's like, the weird thing is that he is completely right about the rate of automation and things. It's just that like, we're still expected to perform on top of and beyond the things that were previously done.
2: Right. Yeah. No, just the, the puritanical concept of like, you need to, you need to work to earn the right to survive. Yeah.
1: I am going to read it.
0: Thank you for sharing this poem. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Sorry if I didn't really like have much to say about it. I normally just pull it up every every few years and then like just try to assess how I feel about it. So I used to be into both of those things, like sort of utopias and like I don't know. I guess like I guess techno utopic like ideas, and I don't know how I feel about it anymore.
2: But. I was gonna ask, how do you feel about this poem now? But I guess you just answered that.
1: Yeah, I feel a lot more pessimistic. I I kind of like. I edited the poem and I kind of like posted it on um, my Instagram in a really weird mood where uh, I just felt like a weird fan
2: edit of the poem.
1: Yeah. Fan edit of the poem is like (laughs) feeling like an AC teen. I imagine that crypto bros like just perish in wildfires of this like cybernetic (laughs) ecology. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I don't know. I used to think of humans just living um sort of like peacefully within the system, but then I'm just like, no, like nature is quite destructive and tries to find balance within that, and I really I'm imagining whole new scenarios with that I was yeah. looking
0: up a little bit of your work before uh we hopped in the podcast. well, I feel like we both do things where it's like uh alternative technology uh design art exploration uh nature mix things, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's that's why I put you two together. Just, <laughs> just tooting my own horn a little bit here.
0: Yeah. And I, I do think about, like, uh, especially for, like, new media uh, artists and explorations, I always feel like everyone explores the area that they were excited about as a kid and then grew complications with. Uh, yes. Uh,
1: um and i think the great thing of uh approaching it creative creatively and um as i've accepted like as an artist and like proudly kind of like um holding the title of artist is that i feel like i mean there's certain degrees which you should be respectful and stuff but as an artist you don't really like have to ask for permission most of the time i mean you should i mean use your common sense but like if i'm like I don't know, interested in a subject which has historically been, I don't know, super gatekeepy or can be hard to access, like as an artist, I can explore it to the best of my abilities, maybe even acquire some grant money if I'm lucky to <laughs> like, pursue that, looking into that curiosity and then see what happens without any consequences. There's no like, five years into like a formal degree hanging on to it. But um uh there's a certain kind of freedom that I really like of being an artist and exploring those things that yeah we were probably interested in when we were younger.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that that like I feel like the reason that we don't have to a- ask permission is that like the art is the question of permission. It's like mm-hmm. art tends to be a question and you're kind of proposing a question to the world or like to your audience and being like or yourself and it's just exploring like uh the area of questions that don't necessarily have a word attached to them or a complete idea yet.
1: Uh, I like the alphabetical lock. You you posted something about an alphabetical lock.
0: Wait, where? Sorry.
1: (laughs) Oh, on on your Instagram.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. I have to remember my own things now, which is...
1: Museum of Lock Technology.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I visited in New York a... uh, It's the Mossman Lock exhibition. It's really cool. I recommend if anyone's in New York to check out the uh, (laughs) the Mossman Lock Collection at the New York Trade Society building. It was so beautiful to see the inside of these locks and they're like all this little inside work. And it was like a weird balance of like, I really like seeing um, kind of branches of technology that we didn't take or like how different technologies were treated over time Mm
1: -hmm. yeah
0: that was definitely a turning point in like my development of figuring out like what i wanted to do with technology and look at was like i was like oh yeah it's not like a linear progression of like technology getting better and better it's like here's one vein that we're currently pretty deep down and it's like where are we where we could have gone or where others are, are currently going
1: yes
2: yeah Are we ready for another topic? Yes. Max, your topic is diatomite and our weird relationship to to tiny cursed skeletons.
0: Yeah. This was one that I put in a while ago. Do either of you know, or have you worked with, like, diatomaceous earth for, like, gardening or anything? I have not.
1: Not intentionally.
0: Yeah. It's often used as a a non-toxic pest killer because it harms insects, but it won't hurt your plants to have it, like mixed into soil or whatnot. It's also used a lot in like Korea and Japan as like a bath mat where it's like a a solid chunk of diatomite. Yeah. And it's like super absorbent, but it's just a weird material. I thought that diatomaceous earth was a really cool name. uh, And so I was looking up what it was. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird thing because it is a rock uh, that is very, very crumbly. uh, And what it is, is it's all of the plankton and microbial life uh, from ancient seas that have dried up uh, and then all that's left is their like calcium structures and so it's these tiny skeletons and they're very weird in like our relationship with them and how we've used them over time like the way that they work on ants as like a, a pest control thing is that the ants will step on this diatomite and like The diatomite is so dry and so uh, (laughs) porous that it will suck the, like, oil membrane off of the ant, and then the ant will dehydrate from uh, its entire body. Okay.
2: I was really hoping it'd be like the ant would step on it and it'd be like, oh, gross. (laughs) skeleton." Yeah. Or even like, oh gross, it's so dry, yeah,
1: uses it to kill cockroaches. and there's different um there's different piles of it in this apartment that I keep like under the sink, there's a pile of it, and I just kind of forgot what it was for a while,
0: yeah, I really like that it's like this weird curse that we put on places, where it's like uh, if you picture like the little Aunt Indiana Jones like going in there, and then the tiny ant Nazi comes and like touches this like pile of skeletons and they're like, What's wrong, Mr. Jones? Are you, like, are you <laughs> full of these skeletons? Uh, and then he goes, <laughs> and then goes away into a skeleton and joins the pile of skeletons. It's also one of the main components in uh, dynamite. <laughs> uh, the reason that dynamite is named that way is it's combination of, like, dynamic and uh, diatomite. Wow. Uh, and it is basically, like, they had nitroglycerin, which is a very potent fuel source but is pretty unstable. Uh and so what you do is you pour the nitroglycerin into diatomite and the these tiny skeletons are like, ah yes, liquids and they absorb all of uh the nitroglycerin into their tiny skeletons and it makes it uh very stable and it makes like a clay that you can form out of it. And on its own it's actually not super flammable. You can like hold a flame to it and it will burn at a pretty steady rate. Uh, but if you have a an initial, like, high heat source, then it, like, all explodes violently. Yeah. And that's, like, the sort of magic of dynamite. Uh, and Alfred Nobel, who invented dynamite, was like, oh, this is great. It'll, like, be safer for mining and it'll end wars because no one will fucking use this on, like, other humans. Right. Uh, and it didn't.
2: Yeah, that's what I thought about the uh, nuclear bombs too.
0: Yeah, and so he felt so bad about that and his like reputation as the dynamite guy. So that's why he founded the Nobel Prize. Yeah. And now that's what he's named for. So that's great.
2: Cool. <laughs> he didn't name the explosive after himself. Thank goodness. Yeah,
0: that would have been too much.
2: I don't think we're making, are we making more dynamite? I don't know if you would know this, but my question is, do you need to farm these creatures?
0: There is enough of it that it is like, there was a good amount of this rock left. We're not in any short supply of it, but it's
2: not sustainable. Like we if we wanted to keep making dynamite forever, we would run no, out.
0: It's not sustainable, but it's also like, it's a pretty common rock. Cause there was a lot of big seas that went away. Right. And I, I forget how long ago it was from, but you know, it's on like geologic scale times. Right. It's also was used like in ancient Greece, uh, as like a toothpaste, uh, so we used to put these tiny skeletons in our mouths and like <laughs> scrub scrub our teeth with it because it's a, a very mild mm, abrasive. Yeah.
2: Oh, we could, tr- we could try that with petroleum, too.
0: Yeah. And you can like sharpen your knives with it a little bit uh, and polish things. But I think it's really funny that we're just so big that the curse of these tiny skeletons doesn't affect us, but we can like place it around our homes to guard it from much smaller beings. Yeah. With their tiny skeleton curses.
1: And it's like you could you could even with the dust make um, you know, different patterns. Like you could put a circle around you just like you would with salt and like demons. Yeah.
0: I guess salt really on its own is also that too, with like people used to use salt as a disinfectant a lot. And it's like huh. you protect your food by coating it in salt and it's like nothing can eat all this salt.
2: Oh sure. Curing it, yeah.
0: But yeah, now you can take the diatomaceous earth under your sink and uh, form it into a sigil. Yes.
2: Are we ready for another topic? Yes. Ananda, your topic is making fermented foods. I want to make stinky tofu.
1: Yeah. I used to travel to China for a bit. I just had the opportunity to go. But my favorite part of going was the late night snack vendors. And one thing that I really miss is stinky tofu. And it's like, it, it can be like, you can make it at home. It's pretty finicky. You have to first make this brine, but in my head I'm like it's not just a brine, it's like a total bubbling sludge because it's essentially just <laughs> like mustard greens and animal organs and like salt and like water and you let that ferment.
2: Okay, so there, there is like a yeast in there. Like that's it's alive.
1: Yeah, there's not just yeast, bacteria, whole whole thing just happening in there. It's very much alive and once that ferments for a couple months um, You use that to marinate your tofu. I was under the impression that you marinate the tofu for a really long time, but actually you just like marinate it for a, a shorter amount of time in the brine made with this like bubbling delicious sludge of like organs and vegetables and salt.
2: Have you tried just drinking the sludge? Oh, God.
1: No, I haven't had access to the sludge before, but I really want to. Oh, sorry. Okay, okay. <laughs> Oh, Max, were you. Say no, something? I was
0: just expressing uh, horror at the concept of drinking the sludge. <laughs> I feel
2: <laughs> like I. Let people drink the sludge that <laughs> they found inside the sarcophagus.
0: Yeah. <laughs> sarcophagus tofu
2: is. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> a delicacy.
1: Yum. I feel like it wouldn't be so bad. Like, I feel like there there are, like, I don't know, preserved organ dishes and things that I've had before that I feel like might have the same tasting notes. I'm not like uh, I have I, I, I like to eat a lot of like what I guess people would call like stinky foods um, but it's, it's hard to uh, access during the time of the pandemic like there's not that many street festivals it's harder to get certain ingredients
2: I feel like this would be a great pandemic hobby like you know how everybody learned to bake bread when yeah. when when this all was first went down it's it's a very similar thing except that probably the the bacteria you need is a little harder to come by
1: I feel like uh it will take a couple tries i'm actually kind of terrified because i haven't done that much that much fermentation with like and like meat products mm. um but yeah. i would i would try it
2: this actually would be my concern is that like well what if i fuck it up and kill myself <laughs> <laughs>
1: If, if the if the Rona doesn't get you, the fermented organs will.
2: <laughs> right.
1: um, I have enough experience with fermentation that I think I will try it, but I don't know when.
2: My guiding star for like I don't know if I were I haven't done this, but I'm I'm assuming like if you make a beer and the beer smells bad, then you don't drink it and you're safe. But stinky tofu is gonna smell bad.
0: Yeah, but it does just... have a specific smell. And I feel like right.
1: Yeah, I feel like since I've like had it before, it would be good. But also with the beer thing, uh I used to work in a brewery and like not as a brewer, but I worked in the kitchen, but we would collaborate with the brewers often with like different ferments and byproducts. But I remember helping them out once and there was a beer that like totally smelt fine because normally for like different food ferments you can depend on your nose. But when when we tasted it, it tasted like band-aids. Uh,
2: huh.
1: like, they're like, yeah, no, this is not good. Not
2: a good, <laughs> not recommended.
1: Yeah. Don't drink the band-aid beer. Yeah. I, I, I think I know what stinky tofu kind of tastes like now to, to be able to try it.
2: I look forward to seeing your Instagram post about this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm taking a break for now, but like when I go back again. Also, a new uh, hobby that I really like is whenever I do like a new ferment. So like once my mom and I made miso, Taking a sample of that and sending it out for like, uh, sequencing and then getting <laughs> like the results back and just like having an idea of like what strain, like what strains of bacteria, um, or yeast are in, are in your sample, um, and just kind of like cataloging it as some of, I'll, I'm like, oh, I'll use this for a future art experiment. But like, yeah, for like 60 bucks, like there's a lot of labs that will just like, Sequence your food stuffs.
0: That's so good. I had never <laughs> That's, thought of that. I like That's that excellent.
2: a lot. Yeah, I remember seeing an article where people DNA sequenced fish bought at the supermarket, and it was not at all the fish that it was labeled as.
1: Yeah, and sushi restaurants too. There, I think it's a citizen science project that you can easily find protocols for online or communities to get in contact with to see what they did, but. There's a lot of people that just even tested like the fish that they got from restaurants to see if it was actually um, what it said it was
0: I also really want to make stinky tofu I would love to try this sometime and compare uh, how it goes yes yes <laughs> compare notes yeah
1: sludge notes I
0: my roommate has <laughs> been making uh, kimchi recently uh, and that's been so good to just have around
1: uh, yeah I feel like with sourdough like kimchi is one of the like champion foods of the pandemic Mm -hmm. it's like there's so many ways to like consume it yeah it's an activity like making it my
0: my kimchi (laughs) use tip for unexpected places that kimchi works great is i have been using it as a mix-in for pizza sauce Mm -hmm. i'll make a pizza and for the sauce i'll just put like just crushed tomatoes and kimchi. Interesting. Like, what you want in a pizza sauce is, like, not too much sour, but, like, a little and some sweetness and some zest. Mm. And as it cooks, the kimchi actually, like, loses a lot of the sour and it it works really well. It's a nice, like, pizza base. Yeah,
1: I'll
2: have to try it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, That's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Uh, Max, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet?
0: You can play tiny games. I've made on Mecham, mechcem, M-E-C-H-C-E-M, uh, dot itch, dot I-O. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram. I don't know how. How do people find on Instagram? <laughs> well, you have a username.
1: You take some magical diatome dust and you put it in a circle and then you play Topic Lord, specifically this episode, and then you will connect to your
2: Instagram. You'll wake up and you'll be you'll you will be instagram yeah and you'll you'll know everything that people all the videos that you will post will go into your head oh no <laughs> yeah you that does sound like a bad idea doesn't it
0: uh draw in diatomaceous earth uh what you feel my soul looks like from the sound of my voice on this podcast
2: <laughs> and uh ananda if this is something that you want where can people find you on the internet
1: um you can uh, i'm taking a break from instagram but you could probably find me on instagram at a underscore underscore gabo g-a-b-o i'm also looking at the diatomaceous earth wiki and the 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 picture says a sample of food grade diet diatomaceous <laughs> oh, I'm no. like why why do you need food grade uh yeah uh, okay
0: for your delicious skeleton snacks
2: thanks so much for being on
0: Yeah. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Thank you.
2: Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed Lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!